Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 23 of the Essential X-Lapsed, where uh, I'm back behind the microphone after a couple of days away from the microphone. I was a little bit ahead on my recording, and that's a good thing because I went in for some uh, dental procedure that left my mouth feeling very, very strange. So I uh, was able to keep everything going without uh, too much discomfort and uh, too much uh, just uh, really unpleasant to listen to, uh, or I guess even more unpleasant to listen to, uh, audio antics from uh, yours truly here. Thing of it is, um, I'm not done with the dental stuff yet. Uh, I do have probably another four or five hours of very invasive Treatments to uh, go through they they found something that they'd like to get a better look at uh, hopefully and probably it's nothing but uh, Hey, it's always better to be safe than sorry. So The uh, some episodes in the next couple of weeks might sound a little rougher than usual, but uh, we'll uh, We'll burn that bridge when we get to it. How about that? Uh, right now speaking of burning bridges here. Let's finish off our sentinel saga we're talking X-Men number 16 today, January 1966 cover date. Stories called The Supreme Sacrifice, written and edited by Stan Lee with layouts by Jack Kirby. Pencils, Werner Roth as Jay Gavin. Inks, or Delineation, by Dick Ayers. Letters, Artie Simic. Colors, um, well, probably someone with an overabundance of pink and purple crayons. Cover price, 12 cents. Now, let's get into it here. We open with a splash page that sort of kind of resembles the cover of X-Factor number 6 from July 1986 cover, only with the Master Mold's head in the middle instead of Apocalypse. And the X-Men, they're even in similar, though not identical, poses. It's, uh, it's pretty cool to look at. It's, uh, it's interesting. Anyway, our story kicks off with the revelation that Professor X was, in fact, able to return his astral form to his physical husk. Now, he recalls the events of last issue. His X-Men are trapped inside the fortress. The Sentinels, of course, are bad news. And, uh, you know, we all know how we got here, right? Just then, the fortress begins to sink back into the ground, hidden under that field of crabgrass. And Xavier laments the fact that now his students are completely cut off from him. Is that a fact? I mean, all it takes is some dirt and metal to interfere with the most powerful mutant mind on the planet? I guess it's too bad he doesn't have, like, a portable mento helmet to, to help amp himself up. Now, Xavier realizes that the best thing he can do now is to head back into the city, where he can study that fallen sentinel back at the TV studio and attempt to deduce what made it go kaput. And so, he drags himself all the way to the nearest highway, where he psychically flags down a ride back to town. Now, the fellows who pick him up think to themselves that it's almost as though they're being forced to obey, and, uh, well, of course, they are. Meanwhile, the X-Men are trapped in a glass globe where the gravity is so strong that they can barely move. Now, the globe is being carried by the Sentinels into some sort of control room. Now, Cyclops attempts to loose an optic blast, but it doesn't even make a mark on the bauble. And I guess it's lucky that it didn't ricochet either, because uh, that would have probably cooked them all. Now, Jean tries to levitate, but cannot. Kid Cool then decides to craft an icy battering ram to press out both ends of the globe. And so he does his damnedest in order to fill the space with ice. Only, the glass proves to be too strong and his rod shatters. And Bobby laments the fact that he failed the team. Cyclops assures him that he didn't fail. And over the course of two sentences refers to Bobby as both boy and man. 
Now, Bobby only gloms onto the fact that Scott called him a man, which is apparently the first time anyone has referred to him as such, which is, uh, well, it's kind of sad. Let's head back to the Master Mold, where they're done with Hank, who uh, spilled the beans on some of the finer points of his origin story last issue. And so, he's going to be deposited into that glass bauble thingy with his teammates for the next little while. Now, Bolivar Trask, he's still putting up a struggle regarding the part the Master Mold expects him to play in the next phase of the plan. Master Mold decides to illustrate just how powerless old Trask is by demonstrating his disintegrator beam. Now, M.M. fires a blast at a machine that kinda looks like the one Reed Richards borrowed from the Watcher right before the wedding. M.M. tells Trask that he'll wipe out the nearest city if Trask doesn't comply. And so old Bully doesn't really have much of a choice here. He agrees to aid the Master Mold while thinking to himself what a fool he has been. He also wishes that the X-Men were here to help him, so uh, the worm has certainly turned. Back to the TV studio. A bunch of officers are standing around the Fallen Sentinel, and uh, the Fallen Sentinel is actually uh, 3R, by the way. It's a, you know, it has a little logo on its belly. Now, the officers recount the events of X-Men number 14, and those events were that Trask created the Sentinels. Then the Sentinels took him prisoner. Our lead inspector wishes he knew why and where they took Trask. Just then, Professor X is carried in on a chair as though he's like Caesar or something. It's pretty funny. Now, he suggests that he could be of assistance, and the inspector says, Hey, hey, we'll take any help we can get, because we haven't the foggiest idea what's going on. And so, Charles holds his temples, and, uh, well, as far as the officers are concerned, he just stares at the sentinel. The inspector rightly thinks that this is ridiculous and proceeds to call the prof out for it. Now, Xavier, thinking he was interrupted by Bobby Drake or something, tells the inspector to shut up at his face. And then, it hits him. Now, the reason that the sentinel went kaput was due to signal interference. Xavier looks behind him to the gigantic window, which all closed-set TV studios have, right, uh, where he can see the Crystal Products building across the street. Unsurprisingly, it's adorned by a giant crystal. Charles deduces that this crystal is what's getting in the way of the sentinel's signal. The inspector asserts that should they move the sentinel a bit to the left or the right, it might come back online. Xavier agrees, but suggests that maybe they don't try it all the same, right? You know, it's uh, let's not uh, tempt fate, right? We'll leave well enough alone. Let's head back to the fortress. Now, Beast is about to be loaded into the trouble bubble, and the Sentinels all stand around in the defensive posture around the globe to ensure that the X-Men don't attempt to escape. Though no sooner do they flip the switch to plop the Beast inside than they're slammed with an optic blast. It's actually pretty adorable. Uh, Cyclops nails one so hard that it causes like a weird domino effect reaction with it. You know, it just tangles all the Sentinels up. Cyclops leaps out, commenting how lucky it is that the Sentinels move so slow. And wasn't he surprised two issues ago about how fast the Sentinels moved? Oh well. Warren flies out of the bubble with Jean, and I guess we can assume that Bobby made his way out too, though we don't see him physically leave. Cyclops blasts the bubble lever in order to make sure it can't be sealed ever again. Even though the X-Men are all outside the thing anyway. From here, we get a load of tandem offense from our teenage heroes. Gene TK's Sentinel No. 7's arms while Iceman ices up the floor neath its feet. Scott throws Hank over his shoulder and the kids all rush toward the Master Mold. But not so fast, mutant zombies, because the Sentinels all stand in a line and level our heroes with the Care Bear Stare. Well, 
A concentration of stun rays, anyway. Um, now, working together are Sentinels S, T, 1, 6, 7, and 8. So it's nice to see lettered and numbered Sentinels working together despite their vast, vast differences. Now, the Sentinels go to prepare to smash the X-Men one final time when they all topple to the ground at once. But how can that be? Hmm. Well, you see, flying overhead at that very moment are Professor X and the police. And with them is a giant pink crystal. I mean, it is a... I mean, this thing is huge. This is a ridiculously sized crystal. The officers don't know why they're even here, considering that below them appears to be nothing more than a field of crabgrass. Xavier insists that this is where they must remain. Now, the officer wants to put up a fight, but cannot, since someone in Washington, D.C. advised him to do whatever the creepy, bald, staring man said. So I figure that's got to be our, our pal Fred Duncan, right? We haven't heard from him in a little bit. Stands to reason. Just then, the fortress rises and somehow fires a barrage of tornadoes skyward. Um, now, the cops want to pull back, but Xavier insists that they press on, claiming that they're really in no danger. And what do you know? The chopper trudges on, KOing the sentinels who are controlling the tornadoes, rendering it, you know, safe. Back inside, the X-Men reconnoiter, Beast included, and head toward the Master Mold. But then, the lights go out. The barefoot beast's bare feet feel the energy of a tremendous machine right below them, so they deduce that they gotta work their way downwards. Speaking of which, we rejoin Master Mold and old Bully Trask as he's about to create eight brand new sentinels. Now, you might think that he's frantically, like, screwing on machine limbs and soldering circuits, but no. No, he's actually stood before eight electrified pods where the bad bots will simply manifest. Now, as Trask toils, he realizes that this system is a little too perfect, and that eventually Sentinels will outnumber humans, and when that happens, it'll all be his fault. Now, as the first eight Sentinels begin to take shape, Bully removes his protective gear and proceeds to smash up all the machinery around him. The Master Mold is quite, quite displeased, but, I mean, he's a machine that sits all the time. There really isn't a whole lot he can do about it. The machine goes foom, just as the X-Men are about to enter the room. Cyclops suggests that, hey, you know what? Maybe someone did their job for them. Angel worries that Dr. Trask might be injured. Beast kind of shrugs with a, like, sucks to be him sort of response. But then, just as the place begins to fall to pieces, immense waves of heat pour out, which bombard poor Bobby. Beast hoists Bobby up with his butt, and proceeds to walk out on his hands. Um, now you see, Bobby's too slippery to hold by hand, and uh, Hank's butt is uh, widely known for its friction, and it's also just plain wide, so it's a good thing. Over the course of the next three pages, the X-Men make their escape from the fortress, dodging obstacles and flame. Professor X looks on while his students escape back to the surface, while shielding their presence to all the officers on duty. And then, the fortress explodes. The Sentinels are out of commission forever. We go deep into the rubble where we see Boulevard Trask laid out on the chest of the Master Mold. And we close out with the tease that there's a menace waiting at the mansion for our heroes. Huh, next episode we will name that menace, and uh, it might be someone we recognize. But that's a discussion for next time. Um, now, uh, I think I'm going to mix things up a little bit here by uh, giving some brief thoughts about the issue before we go into the letters and the bullpen and all that good stuff, because uh, 
I, I guess I'll pull my uh, my Stan Lee card here. By the time we get through the rest of the issue, I've already forgotten what we've talked about insofar as story. So uh, let's see if I can keep my faculties together long enough to uh, to spit out a few words about the third and final part of the Sentinel Saga. It, um, well, it wasn't great. <laughs> I didn't so much care for this. Uh, the Sentinels, uh, I, I can kind of take or leave the Sentinels. There have been some great Sentinel stories, but there have also been some not-so-great ones. And this first one really isn't that great. I, I like that it adds so much to the lore of the X-Men, because, I mean, the Sentinels are a huge part of uh, what's to come. You know, the whole fear and hate thing is is deeply rooted in the Sentinels here, and I mean, that's even to the current year stuff here, where we're dealing with uh, post-humanity, Sentinels, Nimrod, stuff like that. But as far as this story is concerned, it just feels, um, it feels like the X-Men of this era are very, I don't know, maybe procedural? Is that the right term for this? Where there's a formula, right? There's a formula to these X-Men stories, no matter if it's a one-and-done, a two-and-done, or as we find out here, a three-and-done. The X-Men do their thing, they come up short. Then Professor X does something that uh, wins the day. I think this might be a trend that maybe puts me at odds with a lot of the uh, contemporary readers of the day, where uh, a lot of them were very, very pleased to see Professor X take such an active role and always be the problem solver. And uh, a lot of our letter hacks, or a few of our letter hacks, have even cited Professor X as being their favorite character, which, I mean... I really couldn't imagine that uh, at, at any point in time, considering Professor X even in like the top ten of my favorite characters. But here we are, the the big brain fixes everything, and the X-Men kind of just, uh, they're just there, right? They're, they're all captured, they, uh, they only escape because the Professor did his thing. They would have surely perished, you know, they were being bombarded by, by rays, the Care Bear stare of the Sentinels was going to take them out. If uh, not for the creepy bald man in a helicopter overhead, right? And making the X-Men even more incidental in their own book, uh, Bolivar Trask is the one who took down the Master Mold. And don't get me wrong, that's the way it should have ended, right? The, uh, Bolivar came to his senses, realized that he was in the wrong by setting up the Sentinel Army. He had misjudged mutants, he had misjudged the X-Men, and so he went ahead and uh, fulfilled the uh, story's title in performing you know, the ultimate sacrifice here, taking himself out, but also... Taking out the Master Mold. So that much I appreciated and really enjoyed, but uh, you know, the Professor X stuff I could really do without. Um, art here was fine. I mean, the X-Men book is... Uh, I think it's going to be a little while before we really get uh, amped up about the art. It's kind of just the house style. Uh, if it's Kirby, if it's uh, Werner Roth, it's just the house style right now. Nothing to get angry about, nothing to get very excited about. It's uh, just kind of there. It'll be interesting to see how things go when Kirby leaves the book uh, not too long from now and, and leaves it completely in Warner Roth's hands, but uh, we'll get there when we get there. Overall, I'm happy to have this one in the rear view. <laughs> I think three issues for this was uh, perhaps a little much, but much like the art, really nothing to get too hot about and nothing to get too excited about. Kind of just was what it was, and uh, now we've added to the lore, and we've got issues to, uh, to cite any time we talk about the Master Mold or the Sentinels in the future. Is it worth actually, you know, sitting down with and reading? Eh, maybe. I mean, just don't expect anything uh, to rock your socks, and I guess you'll be fine. But uh, that'll do it for my thoughts on this issue, and uh, hey, how about we hop into the letters page now? 
Alrighty, we're going to kick things off with Alex from Tennessee, who is another uh, one of the smartest people in the room. Um, now, he claims that Stan's use of the term Homo sapiens really disturbs him, and claims any student of Latin should be equally disturbed. He states that it means, literally, wise man or sensible man. States that the plural of the term is homines sapientes, or sapientes. I, I never took Latin. Um, he takes issue with Stan's made-up term homo superior as well, um, claiming that this means higher man, and uh, that the plural would be homines superioris. So uh, Stan is both incorrect and just a uh, Latin phony, I suppose, which... Uh, I, I mean, these are comics, right? Is that? Uh, I, I thought that these were comics. Um, anyway, Stan is just—he's totally embarrassed here. Uh, he now knows that everyone is going to know that he only took one term of Latin back in school and didn't do that great, apparently. So uh, I hope you feel good about yourself, Alex in Tennessee. I guess I don't know. John in Colorado—he says that the two-part Juggernaut tale was a masterpiece. He wants to see the Beast in a tighter costume. Okay, then. And uh, of those costumes, he would like to see them go back to being black and yellow instead of blue and yellow. And he wants the X-Men to go monthly. So uh, we got a few things here. Anybody want to guess which of these Stan is going to mention in his reply? Is he going to talk about the Beast's tighter costume or the color of the costumes or the fact that the book went monthly? Huh. Boy, I wonder. Don in Maryland. The X-Men are the greatest things in comics history... And he got in trouble for reading an issue in school. You see, his teacher confiscated his copy, but was later seen reading it herself. The teacher gave it back to him at the end of the day. Now, Stan, he says that he would have rathered she kept the book to prove that she's a real Marvel madman. Hugo in Kentucky. Now, he was listening to WLS radio from Chicago and was shocked to learn that the DJ, Art Roberts, was a member of the Merry Marvel Marching Society. And uh, this is what finally put him over the edge to send in his buck to join as well. Now, he also brags that he owns 252 Marvel Comics. And, jeez, uh, could you imagine what those things are worth right now? I mean, wow. Now, Stan wonders if Art Roberts might demand a commission from Hugo's dollar. And uh, I wonder how much of that dollar it would be. Tommy in Maryland. He thinks Warren Worthington should be embarrassed to use the name Angel and wonders why he uses it. Really? <laughs> I mean, he's got wings, dude. Uh, Stan says if flying around in his X-Men costume doesn't embarrass him, then the name won't either. He also informs us that all the gals in the bullpen think Warren's a real pussycat. And uh, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but uh, we'll, we'll allow it. Larry in Iowa thought X-Men number 12 was beautiful and loved the Toth-Coletta combo. He loved the issue and the feeling of terror presented by Juggernaut's approach of the mansion. He claims that he hated Magneto and he's happy that he's gone. And he's a Merry Marvel marcher himself and thinks the stationary set is real keen. Larry in Manitoba has bought every issue of X-Men, and his favorite character is Cyclops, and he likes that he's not a wise-cracking hero like so many of the Marvel heroes right now. And he compares his optic blasts to a cue-stick hitting a billiard ball. Thanks for sharing, Larry. Michael in California thought X-Men number 13 was fabulous, but he was sad to see Alex Toth go after only one ish. He liked the Human Torch guest spot, and he liked seeing Professor X's powers amped up with the Mento helmet. Peter in Minnesota, 
he considers himself a representative of the... You ready for something really unfunny? Okay, let's do this here. The H-S-O-P-D-A-S-M-M-S. That stands for the Help Stamp Out Putting Down of Artie Symek in Marvel Mag Society. Now, he's tired of seeing all the blasphemous comments about Artie in the comments page. And, well, dear listener, I might have failed you all here. Because I don't normally comment on the silliness in the credits, because Stan will be silly in the credits. Or whoever's writing them, I suppose, is being silly. So, uh, if you're not actually reading along with the show, this might all be lost on you. So, I figure I'm going to go through all of the Art Symec appearances we've covered so far and uh, tell you how he is introduced. Okay? So the first time we saw Art Symec was X-Men number 3. The credits read, Lettering, Art Symec. So very, very disrespectful. Uh, X-Men number 4, Legible Lettering by Art Symec. I mean, just, I, I can't, I can't bear with this. Fantastic Four number 28, lettered by Art Symec, and then in parentheses, The Letterer. Okay. X-Men number 7, lettered with all the words spelled right by Art Symec. Mm-hmm. Strange Tales 128, Melancholy Lettering by Artie Symek. It's not really an insult. X-Men number 11 might be the worst of all here. Exemplary Lettering by Artie Symek. Real insult to the man. Avengers number 16, Delicate Lettering by Art Symek. X-Men number 14, Artie Symek, comma, T-O-L, and then in parentheses, T-O-L stands for Tired of Lettering. X-Men number 15, Adorable Artie Symek, comma, Letterer. X-Men number 16, Lettering, colon, Art Symek. Now, Pete claims that until this abuse stops, he will picket all newsstands in the five-county mosquito-controlled district. And uh, Stan informs him that this letter was received by sloppy, sneaky, skinny Stan Lee, and then reread by sophisticated, sensational, superb Artie Symek, hoping that that might... Help make things right with uh, with old Pete here, and uh, we're actually going to change the credits up completely in a couple of episodes to uh, to glorify Artie Symex. So uh, Stan is uh, ever the reactionary at this point. So um, and I do know that he had his fun with uh, the letterers in the credits. Uh, just that the X Men book doesn't seem to be, or the X Men appearances overall just don't seem to be uh, all that noteworthy in that regard. Next up, Lewis in California. Now, he feels as though Marvel Comics might be fit to wrap fish or line garbage pails. Lou is annoyed by the blindingly prejudiced Marvel madmen in the letters pages. But he won't say anything else untoward since he just bought two new Marvels that blew him over. Those being Fantastic Four Annual number 3 and X-Men number 13. Now, he says that Fantastic Four Annual number 3 wasn't the best annual ever, but it was the best 1965 annual. He thought that the plot was thin, but loved all the cameos, which is pretty apt, if you ask me. That's basically how we came away from it, right? Uh, and he was happy that it reprinted Fan- Fantastic Four number 6, since he no longer owns it. And he thought X-Men number 13 was outstanding, and would like to see Joe Sinnott get more work. Now, Stan says that Sinnott will be inking Fantastic Four from this point on. Now, that does it for the letters page, but now the bullpen is actually on its own page. So uh, we will be taking a look at the entirety of the uh, bullpen bulletins from, uh, I guess, from the very start here. So in it, we have Stan explaining that hundreds of letters wrote in to ask why the 1965 Marvel annuals were so reprint-heavy. And Stan gives two reasons. One might be more honest than the other. 
Uh, the first is that there are so many new readers who didn't get them the first time around. I mean, that's honest enough, but I don't think that's the more honest answer, which is number two. Stan says, uh, hey, it takes a long time to make new comics. And I mean, who could really argue that? He then goes on to compare Marvel's annuals to the brand Ech annuals. And uh, the brand Ech annuals feature no new content. They're all reprints, so uh, Marvel goes the extra mile for you. Stan then introduces the world to Roy Thomas, and he refers to him as a fan who made it. Roy is a school teacher in St. Louis who loves Marvel Comics more than anything. And, well, uh, he might like Brand Ech more at this point, but uh, we, we won't worry about that for now. Uh, now, Roy will be taking over uh, scripting duties on X-Men in, I believe, issue 20. So, uh, four episodes from now, we will have Rascally Roy on the script. Stan then mentions how he always teases the letterers in the credits. Huh. Talk about quick reaction time to a certain letter, huh? He assures us all that it's just in fun and how he loves Artie Simek and Sam Rosen. Stan announces that Joe Sinnott will be the permanent inker on Fantastic Four, which we found out in the letters page. In the Did You Know department, we find out that uh, Marvel is part of a huge publishing empire featuring mags like Monsters Unlimited and You Don't Say. We wrap up by listing 25 new Merry Marvel Marchers, and uh, they all get their names and hometowns listed here. Let's wrap things up with our mighty Marvel checklist here. Fantastic Four number 46, The Inhumans are back, and Stan suggests that you do not miss this issue. I disagree. Spider-Man number 33, and uh, we've never seen Spidey more dazzling nor dramatic. Okay. Avengers number 24, Trapped in the Future. Daredevil number 12 features two villains. Which villains? Well, who knows? Thor number 124 is an offbeat, unexpected shocker. It probably has him fighting Hercules for the 400th time. Strange Tales number 141. Nick Fury faces a life-and-death struggle, and Doctor Strange faces the Dread Dormammu. Tales to Astonish 76. Namor finally comes to the surface world. Again. And the Hulk has a new super foe. Tales of Suspense 74, The Fate of Happy Hogan will leave us absolutely breathless. And Captain America only has seconds to save the world. Finally, Sergeant Fury number 26 has Dum Dum Duggan stealing the show and our hearts. Okay, maybe not that last part. But anyway, that is everything. Everything except the ads, and uh, we will be peppering some ads in in the coming episodes here. They don't change all that much. There'll be a few novel uh, ads that we will cover, but like I said, for the most part, it's the same old, same old, you know. You want to get muscles, you want to play pranks on your neighbors, if you want to sell grit, it's that kind of thing over and over again. But uh, we'll get there when we get there. But that's going to do it for us today. Um, If you'd like to write in and join the show, I'd love for you to do so. You can find me several different ways on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook, 90s X-Men on Facebook. We have a lot of fun conversations in there, and I'd love to see you uh, be a part of it. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. I recently put up a total package episode compiling our 10 hours, 10 plus hours, of Age of Apocalypse discussion here, which uh, 
took probably about six months to put together. So it was a, uh, a big project, one that we were very proud of, and one that I hope uh, reaches some new ears and maybe uh, gets a few revisits or re-listens from uh, some folks who listened to it initially back in the long ago. And uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Age of Apocalypse as well. We can share those comments on the main X-Lapse program and hopefully find some fun conversations to uh, be had there. But that's going to do it for me today. I would like to thank you all so much for letting me take up residence in your ears for a little while today. And also, I would like to apologize if my voice sounds any uh, different today. Uh, my mouth certainly feels different, so um, it wouldn't surprise me much if... Uh, if I'm coming across a little different, hopefully it's not too terrible or distracting, and hopefully I uh, get over it soon enough. But uh, thank you all so, so much one more time, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>